electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Distribution Day is here. It's December 14th. Write it down. Vaccines are on the way. Following emergency use authorization from the FDA, Pfizer's COVID vaccine ships out. In total, enough for 20 million people in December. More and more going out through the first quarter. The CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, joins us on the day his company makes history. It's a great moment for us. After nine months of a global pandemic, the largest immunization effort in history begins. The first doses given to healthcare workers today. This is a vaccine that was developed without cutting corners from a company with 171 years of credentials. It's Monday, December 14th. Vaccine Day 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This is D-Day, which is the term that you use anytime that there's a military front where we're going to be taking a significant strategic action. That's what this is. This is the turning point when we really fight back against COVID. It's an historic day uh, today. This is the moment uh, that the fight against COVID uh, begins in earnest. After months of research and clinical trials, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine delivery underway Millions of doses being distributed across the country. And for all of that, Meg Terrell joins us to discuss and break it all down. Meg. Good morning, Andrew. It was a very active weekend in terms of progress for the vaccine. Friday night, of course, the FDA granted that emergency use authorization for Pfizer and BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for people aged 16 and older. Saturday was also a very busy day. Uh, The CDC's outside committee of advisors met and voted to recommend this vaccine. Sunday, these historic images came out of Pfizer's employees packing up these shipments uh, to go out from their Kalamazoo plant and start getting shipped by FedEx and UPS all across the country. Uh, Saturday, Operation Warp Speed had a briefing, and here's how General Gus Perna, similarly to Becky, put the significance of this moment. You have heard me refer to today as D-Day. Some people assumed that I meant day of distribution. In fact, D-Day in military designates the day the mission begins. D-Day was a pivotal turning point in World War II. It was the beginning of the end. D-Day was the beginning of the end, and that's where we are today. But guys, General Perna saying that we are not without challenges ahead of us. Here are the plans for the locations expected to receive vaccine this week. 636 in total, 2.9 million doses going out. 145 locations received their shipments today, 425 tomorrow, 66 on Wednesday with the first healthcare workers expected to get their vaccine sometime this morning, guys. Uh, and it's important to look back at this race that they've had toward this vaccine. 
vaccine because it shattered every record in modern medical history. Of course, it was only December 31st that the World Health Organization became aware of this mysterious pneumonia in Wuhan, China. The genetic sequence of the virus was shared January 11th, and that kicked off this worldwide race for vaccines and drugs. Pfizer and BioNTech teamed up in March. They dosed their first patient in their clinical trial in April. And then, of course, we all remember that day in November where the vaccine was proven to be more than 90 percent effective. And those final results coming on the 18th, 95 percent effective. And guys, of course, getting that emergency use authorization on Friday. Back over to you. Meg, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's an amazing day uh, and an important first step uh, in what I imagine is going to be, uh, I hate to say it, a bit of a journey still, especially given the backdrop of, of, of COVID-related uh, deaths and just the spike in COVID that we're seeing all over the country. Just walk us again, and you've done it before, just through the numbers in terms of what we plan to see in terms of availability uh, from this moment forward, if you could. So this week, it's just those first 2.9 million doses going out. There was an entire batch of 6.4 million doses available, and Operation Warp Speed decided to hold half of those and ship them in three weeks so that it could fully vaccinate the first group of people to receive the vaccine. Uh, guys, this week, of course, we are expecting Moderna to go through the same FDA process. Its documents come out tomorrow. Thursday, there's a big FDA meeting. We could see potentially Friday another vaccine getting cleared in the U.S., and that will add to supply in total enough for 20 million people in December, uh, more and more going out through the first quarter. Uh, we will have to see how this goes. This is a massive vaccination campaign. Some concerns over whether states have enough funding to truly do this at the speed and scale that they're being asked to. Um, so we'll have to see if the actual vaccinations can keep pace then with the supply. But then, of course, questions about supply uh, getting into the first quarter and the second quarter when vaccines are hoped to be available more broadly for the general population. So it should be similar to what we saw uh, with Moderna. It, we get those documents that the FDA sort of shows its hand on what it's thinking. Then Thursday you get the panel meeting. Then we could uh, have it by Friday. So that's going to happen with Moderna starting tomorrow, uh, as you said. It's interesting what you said about how quickly... Uh, that this came out because in the old days you were dealing with with science uh, constraints and in, in the in the lab you were doing using attenuated virus or, or whatever it was uh, and there were all types of daunting obstacles about safety and everything this time it's about testing and, and that's why I would think no matter how advanced we get in terms of sequencing and and being able to design these things there's going to be a minimum amount of time it takes to gather patients to have enough of them possibly get it or not get it, uh, to, to test the uh, safety and efficacy. So I, I don't see us getting below what this was. What was this, 10 months? What did you say it was? I don't, I don't see us, no matter what the science or, or, or uh, lab work tells us, this seems about as quickly as, as we're going to be able to do it because you need to test for safety and efficacy. Yeah, there's a, an important phenomenon in understanding vaccines called correlates of protection, really understanding what the immune response needs to be, how much of an antibody response, how much of a T-cell response our immune systems have to generate to protect us against a virus. And with a brand new virus, we don't know what those correlates of protection are. But through these data from Pfizer and Moderna, they are figuring that out. And that will enable the speeding up potentially of the testing of future vaccines because we'll know, okay, if you get your antibody levels to this point, you'll be protected. And so uh, with a brand new virus, though, you're right, Joe, difficult to make it any faster than they did it this time. Hey, Meg, one question I, I wanted to ask you, and it's it sort of the backdrop is is the vaccines, but you know we also are at this moment where we're nearing 300,000 deaths in America, over 3,000 deaths a day, 
And the question I was going to ask was actually about the state of therapeutics. For so long, we talked about therapeutics. There was a lot of attention on therapeutics, whether it be a Regeneron or Remdesivir or what Eli Lilly was doing. And we're still seeing these 3,000 deaths a day. And my question is, how is that going? It's such a good point. You know, we expected that medicines would be available first uh, to make a difference in this pandemic. And we did get remdesivir. There is international disagreement over how useful remdesivir is in treating COVID. But, but that is used sort of routinely in hospitals. Then the antibody drugs, of course, from Regeneron and Eli Lilly, those are authorized, but there's not enough of them. And so they're getting rationed. Uh, we will start to see the supply of those antibody drugs ramp up in the new year as particularly Regeneron partners with Roche uh, for international partnership over manufacturing that antibody. And that will become more plentiful. But at the beginning, it hasn't been enough to really make a dent in this pandemic. And then, of course, there are novel antiviral drugs that have been developed um, or are being developed. Merck has one that it licensed from Ridgeback uh, that is going into large-scale clinical trials. And we hope to see those data really soon um, to see a potential pill that could help uh, with this disease. But uh, the, that category has gone maybe more slowly than people hoped it might. Hey, Meg, what, whatever happened with the people who are in these tests? I know Pfizer wanted to make sure that they could give the vaccine to all of those who volunteered to step forward and take these early phase uh, three trials. And the FDA wasn't in favor of that because they wanted to see some, some additional uh, information to continue those tests to, to maybe take some longer term with it. What, what happened to that? When can those people get the placebo? Because, again, these are people who really stepped forward and, and took it when there were so many questions about how risky it would be to take that vaccine. Yeah, there were there was a lot of debate about this on thir at Thursday's meeting because the longer you keep people split into their placebo and vaccine groups, the longer you can follow them and the better data you can collect over time. And that's really important to the FDA. But it's also important, of course, to to make sure that the people who volunteered for this trial aren't at least treated worse than than everybody else in the general population as a reward for, for their service. Uh, I need to check exactly when the people will be able to get the vaccine. But one discussion uh, was that they shouldn't be behind people in line in the, their priority group. So when the time for them uh, in the population, if they're a healthcare worker, if they're you know, just a regular person, when their time comes up, they should be able to get the vaccine. Uh, there were all kinds of complicated ideas suggested, like switch everybody, but don't tell them if they got the placebo or the vaccine the first time and things like that. Uh, so we'll have to see exactly how they do that, um, but they should be able to get the vaccine. Okay, Meg, thank you, uh, of course, for this report. Next on Squawk Pod, Pfizer Chairman and CEO Albert Borla on this big day, reaching dose and goals and combating vaccine hesitancy. The decision not to vaccinate will not affect only your health or your life. Unfortunately, it will affect the lives of others and likely the lives of the people you love the most. So I think trust science. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. Monumental day for public health in this country. The first shots 
of Pfizer and BioNTech's coronavirus vaccine are expected to be administered in this country uh, today. We've already seen the UK, obviously. And we have the biggest interview you'll see anywhere. Meg Drell brings it to us now, joins us, uh, joining us with a special guest. Meg, good morning. Joe, good morning. That special guest, of course, is Pfizer chairman and CEO Albert Borla. Uh, Albert, thanks for being with us this morning. I mean, this is a historic day. Uh, you've given hope to people of the United States. Just tell us how you're feeling today and how the people of Pfizer are feeling as, you know, you've given us this, this way out, this light at the end of the tunnel. Oh, they are feeling very proud. They are feeling very proud for what they do every day. But now it's uh, the recognition is so overwhelming. Uh, Everyone, including me, I'm receiving notes in my mailbox from neighbors that they just don't want to come in because of COVID restrictions and social distancing, but they are leaving their notes to say thank you, Pfizer. So it's a great moment for us. You know, we were talking this morning about just the historic pace with which you and your partner, BioNTech, developed this vaccine with the genetic sequence just being posted in January. You shattered every record. Did you expect back when you guys partnered up in March that you could do it this fast, that by December, whatever day it is, 14th, these shots would be getting administered? I was hoping, I was aspiring, and I was driving everything so I can do it. But I deep, deep inside me, I thought that it is a very stretched goal and there's small possibility to make it, but we made it. Well, let's talk about what's happening right now. Your employees uh, at your Kalamazoo plant are packing up this vaccine. They are shipping out hundreds of thousands, millions of doses uh, across the United States this week. Uh, just tell us about this logistical challenge that is ahead and really put it into context for us for how much of a challenge it is for Pfizer. You are a huge company. You distribute lots of vaccines. <clears throat> how does this challenge compare? We are preparing for that uh, for uh, months now, uh, starting from developing this uh, famous uh, box that our engineers uh, designed and uh, doing uh, dry runs and preparing for that. And uh, I'm very optimistic that things will go very well. It is extremely challenging to have a logistical uh, operation that uh, plans to send vaccines at the same time to hundreds of countries of millions of doses. Uh, and uh, the cold chain makes it more complicated, but uh, I think we have it and I'm sure or I believe very confident. I'm very confident that things will go very smoothly. Well, tell us about your expectations for supply. Of course, you know, on November 9th, um, when we had the huge news that your vaccine worked at 90 percent uh, efficacy, you also reduced the supply forecast for this year to 50 million doses from 100 million. It sounded like there was a bit of a bottleneck with raw materials. How confident are you in the supply chains being able to enable you to hit all your goals to get to 1.3 billion globally doses next year? I'm optimistic. And uh Always there are challenges, but uh, as I said, I think most of them have been overcome. I'm sure across the way there will be more bumps, but we are uh, very used to it. So right now we said 50 million for this year, and most of them already has been manufactured, and we are allocating it. And uh, next year will be 1.3 billion, and we are working to make much more than that. So the 1.3 billion, it is our commitment to the world, but we are working to make much more. Well, can you bring us some clarity on the situation uh, with the U.S. government where, uh, you know, Dr. Gottlieb told us, who's on your board, that Pfizer had offered um, its second quarter allotment of doses to the U.S. government a number of times before then. Of course, other governments wanted to buy those doses. Uh, what is your relationship like with the Trump administration? You know, the president accused Pfizer of waiting until after the election to 
to present your data. And you, of course, told us on November 9th there was no politics involved there. But has that strained your relationship with the U.S. government? I hope not. We are uh, not in the business of uh, taking political sides. We are advocating for policies that they are pro-patient, they are pro-innovation, but we are not taking political sides. So we are working with this administration and we will work equally with the next administration. And during the transition, we are working with, with both. Um, I think right now the U.S. government has asked us for additional 100 million uh, doses, and we are in a position to provide them, uh, but we are working the, the, the time frame. We can provide uh, a lot of that in the third quarter. The U.S. government wants it in the second quarter. We are working very collaboratively uh, to try to find a solution and be able to allocate those uh, 100 millions in uh, uh, the second quarter, if possible, or a lot of them. No, but we haven't signed an agreement. We're working very collaboratively, but not an agreement yet. We need to wait a little. We've heard that uh, Operation Warp Speed, you know, has offered to help Pfizer to try to increase the manufacturing capacity or speed uh, your ability to deliver those doses to the U.S. One way that's been suggested that that could be done would be to use the Defense Production Act, not to force Pfizer to do anything, but to obtain supplies, raw materials, things like that. How do you uh, interpret the or how would that affect Pfizer if the Defense Production Act were used to help you? I think it would be very positive, and I think that it will allow us to maximize what we can do. We are asking them uh, right now a few things. We haven't, they haven't done it yet, but we are asking them, and I hope that uh, they will do it very soon, because uh, particularly in some components, we are running at uh, critical supply uh, limitations. But I think they will do it so that uh, there will be no problem. And, and if the U.S. government does use the Defense Production Act to help you, uh, does that give them more control uh, over the doses or anything that Pfizer does? I think that uh, right now we don't need uh, excessive measures, but uh, at least uh, to get some rated orders in some of the suppliers, uh, because if not, they will put into jeopardy in general, the supply chain. But uh, I don't think it is uh, a combative relation right now that if you are going to take over our manufacturing capacity or not. I think it's a collaborative. And uh, everybody understands that the U.S. Uh, is a major priority, but uh, the remaining of the world also have uh, human lives that need to be saved. Absolutely. Well, I want to ask you also, I mean, this is a, such a historic day that this vaccine is getting rolled out, but it does not mark the end of you actually studying this vaccine and understanding it better. And there are many important questions uh, that we need the answers to, including does the vaccine prevent infection completely so that, you know, once people get vaccinated, they actually can stop wearing masks. Right now, you know, people who get the shot are still being recommended to wear masks, socially distance as much as possible, even though it will cut down on their chances of getting the disease by 95%. When when will you know uh, that this vaccine, if this vaccine prevents infection? I believe in a few months we are trying to, 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 to run a lot of analysis around that. There are some indications in animals that it does so, but there is no proof in humans. So the suggestions that uh, until we know for certain that uh, it, it, it does it or not, we should be wearing a mask. I think it's a very prudent one and everybody should follow it. Uh, Mr. Borlas, uh, it, it's Joe Kernan. We, we had a kind of a, a theoretical discussion earlier about the state of, of vaccine development. And you go back 50, 60 years. I mean, you go back to the discovery of really of penicillin, and it's also recent. And, and the breakneck pace of te technological advances that we've seen. And I, I was just wondering whether because of the testing, it's much more uh, it's much faster to make a vaccine now to develop one. But I would think there's a certain amount of time you still need 
just to test and that we're going to hit those limits of how quickly it can be done. But then I thought again about the, the messenger RNA technology and the platform and how quickly you could adjust to a change in, in the virus, a mutation in the virus. You could probably adjust very quickly to the sequence of, uh, of what you were putting into a person and maybe it wouldn't take that long. Do you, do you have a feeling for that? Is it that powerful where we could do this very, very quickly if, if we did see a mutation? It is very powerful and one of the reasons why uh, we selected the, the mRNA technology together with our partner BioNTech uh, was one of them was this one that we can uh, very quickly uh, develop a vaccine and very quickly adapt it if there is a, a, a mutation out there. Uh, but you need to understand also that uh, this technology didn't start yesterday. There are decades of investments and uh, in similar in this technology so that we will be able to move uh, with the speed that we moved uh, right now. Uh, so it's not that we started from scratch. We knew a lot of things and we had developed and invested at risk a lot before. Hey, Albert, congratulations on, on what you all are rolling out today. This is, this is huge. We've been waiting for this, and, and you've given us so much hope. You know, a question about what comes next. I, I know that the, uh, the FDA did sign off on these, this idea of kids as young as 16 getting this vaccine, even though they're, they're not going to be in the first tranches of people who get it. I know that you're testing on younger kids, and I just wonder when you think vaccines will start rolling out, when you'll start seeing younger populations actually inoculated. I think that uh, that will depend in every country based on uh, their plans, uh, how to use strategically the, the quantities that will be available to them. Um, I believe in most of the countries that, that will take some time because I believe in most of the countries, like in the US, they will have as first priority the first respondents in the healthcare system, then uh, senior people living in, in, uh, in nursery homes, then other senior people, so more vulnerable situation, people with comorbidities. So until you come to healthy uh, people, I think it will take some uh, time, the recommendation. And that will be, I think, the most limited factor, not uh, the approval of, uh, of uh, going into younger ages that I believe will come when the full approval of the product uh, will come, if FDA approves it, uh, around uh, between first and second quarter, around April. Albert, it's Andrew. Uh, congratulations again, and thank you uh, on behalf of everybody uh, across the globe. I did want to ask you, though, about this and just get your thoughts. Uh, as you know, South Africa and India are now petitioning the World Trade uh, Organization to suspend effectively patent protection, uh, intellectual property uh, protections for things like this very vaccine. You have Doctors Without Borders. They've begun a social media campaign uh, talking about putting lives over profits what do you tell them and how do you think about that? I think they are wrong. I don't know in any instance that IP has been an, an, an obstacle to develop it. Actually, IP is what kept this uh, industry vibrant. So they were able in record time when society needed to develop uh, these solutions. I, there is bottleneck right now which has to do with manufacturing capacity. And uh, it's not that it is manufacturing capacity of us, for example, in our case. It is manufacturing capacity globally. If there is someone who could uh, do it, we already came into contact with them and we try to see how much they can produce for us. But it is highly specialized technology, requires highly specialized equipment, highly specialized materials. And right now, the fastest way to be able to develop it, it is within our, within our house. So I don't think IP is at all uh, an aim issue. 
And that's interesting. You, you've sort of scoured the world for people who could help you increase supply even further. Uh, and messenger RNA vaccines are brand new. Yours is the first one to reach the market. Uh, but are you, do you expect that there are you know, makers of vaccines? Of course, there are huge makers of vaccines in India, for example. They are partnering with other companies like AstraZeneca, like the Serum Institute of India. Do you expect that perhaps as the technology is better understood, the manufacturing is better understood, you could find partners in other countries who could help you with this? Yes, I'm speak, speaking, uh, I'm talking specific about the RNA technology. Other technology, there is much broader capacity available. And I'm sure in India there is a high qualified capacity, but they can do that. But there's not in mRNA. mRNA, as you said, it is a very highly specialized cutting edge manufacturing processes that we actually develop them. They were not existing before. We had to develop the manufacturing processes and we had to develop the process that from the lab will scale up to make $1.3 billion. So we have done it, 1.3 billion doses. We have done it. So unfortunately, it does not exist out there. We are trying to see if we can teach other people and uh, if uh, they can, we can help them order equipment. Uh, all of that, there's no stone that we are leaving unturned right now. And this is the basis of what I said before. We have promised to the world 1.3 billion doses, but we are hoping, but we are trying hard to make much more than that. And that based on increasing our own and also finding partners to do it. But right now, we don't. We are not aware of anyone who can do it. And we looked a lot. And how, I'm sure you have, and it's a very complicated manufacturing process, just getting the mRNA perfectly into the, the little lipid nanoparticle that enables you to deliver it to the body safely. Um, I want to ask you, though, how, how do you make those decisions um, when you're getting orders from every government around the globe, when you're getting orders from nonprofit organizations? You know, the World Health Organization has this mechanism, COVAX, to provide a vaccine to, um, to less developed countries. How do you make the decision who to sell the vaccine to, who gets it, and when? We went from the very early days, and basically we spoke with every single government in the world, telling them uh, that... Uh, presenting the potential vaccine that we may have and uh, asking them to, to have uh, an agreement so that we can allocate doses to them. So basically, uh, the agreements were coming as we were negotiating. We were trying to spread it, but eventually the orders were many, much more than what we could uh, produce. So we tried to give to all and uh, we tried also to follow the order once, the, uh, an order of ordering. So once, for example, mm -hmm. U.S. ordered 100 million doses, we allocated uh, to them. Uh, and then uh, Japan ordered, we allocated to them. And then Europe ordered, and we allocated to them. And Israel and every other country in the world. And does price come into it at all? Uh, or are you essentially trying to keep prices around the same for each government? No, we, they are, prices are materially the same for high... We have a tier pricing. So for uh, governments of developed countries like uh, the U.S., Europe, uh, Japan, etc., we have one tier of price based on how many orders, basis, uh, how many doses they order, but was materially the same. Then for middle income countries, uh, we are offering uh, a much lower price. And then for low income countries, uh, in some countries in Africa and other places, we are offering non-for-profit and it has nothing to do with uh, the price, how we allocate.
I see. I want to ask you also about data you're collecting on allergic reactions to the vaccine. Of course, there were reports from the UK. Some healthcare workers had those severe allergic reactions. Um, this is, of course, now being monitored for as this gets rolled out in the US. What kind of studies is Pfizer planning to do on that to help understand better just the risk of that for people? We, we did a lot of studies because, you know, with 44,000 people, we were trying to see if there are any allergic reactions. We didn't see now 44,000 assembled. Uh, I know that uh, there were two in the UK. I, I, we haven't received the details other than that they were healthcare workers and they had uh, they were carrying an EpiPen. So they were uh, they, they had a history of uh, supersensitivity. Uh, but um, that was something that was extensively discussed uh, at uh, the FDA level, at the CDC level. And, uh, you know, normal precautions for as for any vaccines for people that they have allergic reactions, I think should be followed. I want to ask you also about a very important issue of vaccine hesitancy. Uh, even folks who get most of their vaccines normally might be hesitant about these vaccines because they were developed so quickly. What do you tell uh, those folks who might be saying, well, I'm going to wait a few months before I get this one? I, I would tell them I wish that the situation was not so critical so that they can have the luxury <laughs> to think about it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, the, the situation is as deadly as it could be right now with the, the amounts of deaths or new, new cases that we are facing. So they need to think it uh, twice. Uh, this is a vaccine that was developed without cutting corners from a company of, with 171 years of uh, credentials. This is a vaccine that was developed in the spotlight and the daylight with all the data being put in servers. This is uh, a vaccine that uh, has been approved in the US by two separate uh, governmental agencies, CDC and FDA, after listening to two separate independent scientific bodies. One it is the FDA and the other is the ACIP from, uh, from, uh, for the CDC. And this is a vaccine that is getting approved by all authorities in the world. So uh, that should say something to them. And uh, I repeat once more, the decision not to vaccinate will not affect only your health or your life. Unfortunately, it will affect the lives of others and likely the lives of the people you love the most, which are the people that usually you are in contact with. So uh, I think uh, trust science. Mm. Well, and a question for you. I've heard you have not yet had uh, your shot. When do you plan to get it? The sooner <laughs> I can, I will. The only sensitivity here, uh, Meg, is that... Uh, I don't want to, uh, to have an example that I'm uh, cutting the line, that uh, I am uh, uh, 59 years old, in good health, I'm not working in the front line, so my type is not recommended to get vaccination now, so that's one consideration. On the other hand, our company ran a lot of uh, polls to see what will take people to believe it, and one of the highest ranking even higher than if Joe Biden takes it, even higher than if the other presidents take it, it is if the CEO of the company takes it. So with that in mind, um, I'm trying to find a way that um, I will get vaccinated despite if it is not my, uh, my time, just to demonstrate the confidence of the company. But we have made the decision that uh, if we have to do that, we will not do it with our executives. Uh, so none of the executives of board members will cut the line. They will take it as their age uh, and the occupation uh, type uh, uh, is, uh, is, a, is a time for them to take. 
All right. Well, Albert Borla, we'll, we'll wait for that news. We'll send a camera if you'll let us. Thank you so much for being here with us today on this historic day. Thank you very, very much. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick. The special programming note to tell you about. Tomorrow on Squawk Box, we're going to be talking to Warren Buffett and Goldman Sachs CEO David Solomon about the biggest challenges facing the backbone of our economy. That's the thousands of small businesses that are struggling greatly right now with no sign of relief because Congress has not yet passed any additional relief. I think it's been almost 260 days since the last COVID relief was passed. And obviously, we know the situation's gotten a lot worse since then. Uh, guys, this is a matter that's near and dear to both these gentlemen's hearts. Goldman Sachs, under Lloyd Blankfein, started the 10,000 Small Businesses Program. They actually have 10,000 small businesses plus that have graduated from that program. It's a program that provides education. It provides capital. It provides uh, help with services, business services that uh, entrepreneurs would need to understand how to be better small business run owners. Um, and it's a program that Warren Buffett's been involved with for the last 10 years since it started. Um, he's gone to a lot of these graduations and has been very um, involved with just what these small business owners are doing, what these entrepreneurs are doing. Uh, David Solomon says that this is a huge uh, point of uh, pride for the firm and what they've been able to do. And both these gentlemen understand the pressures that these companies are coming under right now. Um, they did a survey at Goldman Sachs of those small business owners, and 96 percent of them came back and said that they think it's very important for the Republicans and the Democrats to stop their, their, their political talking points on both sides, get past the partisan politics, and actually find ways to pass bipartisan support, areas where both parties agree on this. Uh, the pain that they've been under at this point is real and it's palpable. In fact, when they surveyed them about that, 42% of them said that they've either had to lay off workers or cut their pay since this pandemic began. And even more than that, 52% of them have taken a cut in pay or no pay of their own while they're trying to keep their business afloat. Well, um, back, 28 well, percent well, say that legislative uncertainty is making yeah. them consider closing well, their this businesses be about, at this point. Well, well do, do you know the perspective of Warren? You talked to him a lot. I mean, is it, is it purely yeah. about government assistance or is it a reopening, reclosing uh, conversation to have? There's a lot of small businesses. No, I think their concern at this point is, oh, go ahead, sorry. 
No, it's just it's a lot of small businesses look around and are, are very frustrated with a lot of the, the, the stuff the government is telling them that they're, they're mandated to do. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering whether that's what we're talking about or it's purely about providing a bridge to where, you know, the, the thing where I, honestly, we get I don't beyond know. this. I, I'm not sure what their thoughts are. I'm not sure what their thoughts are on all of this. I've spoken with both of them about this. Their concern is the pressure that are on small businesses right now. I, I don't know how much of this is trying to make sure that the government does something to assist them and how much of it is concerned about the government shutdowns that have come. But, but I think if you look at it, in some cases, even where there haven't been government closures, there's been massive pressure on these small businesses, something like a, a third of businesses in New Jersey, a third of restaurants in New Jersey were facing serious pressures even when they were allowed to be open and serving outside during the summertime. I mean, it's, if you talk to many of these restaurants, they can't survive at 50 percent capacity. They can't survive at 20 percent capacity. But I don't know their thoughts, honestly, in, in terms of what they'd like to see with some of those government mandates as well. We can talk to them about that tomorrow. Um, Buffett hasn't spoken since the annual meeting for Berkshire Hathaway back in May. He doesn't have any plans to speak again until the annual meeting uh, coming up next May. But he did say the one thing he will talk about is small businesses. He's very concerned about the pressure that they're facing and concerned about what Washington is and, and is not doing at this point. David Solomon is going to stick around for longer. He'll talk a little bit more about other things he's seeing in the markets and other hey. areas with the economy. Um, go ahead, Andrew. I think. And no, I was just going to say it's a, it's a very important interview because you know to hear from Warren during during this is 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 clearly very important. I, I actually don't think that David's spoken uh, that much publicly either. And I, I wanted to actually ask both of you because I was I was thinking about this over the weekend why we haven't had more pressure, frankly, on Washington or why Washington hasn't moved. And and one of the things I wonder is actually whether um, it relates directly to quote unquote the elites or the, or the most influential and powerful people in the world. Uh, pushing on Washington, which is to say that in the midst of crisis back in March, there were lots of there were lots of people, CEOs and the like, who were all over Washington saying, you have to do this. The world is ending if you don't do this right now. But the biggest companies in the world uh, have had great success during this this crisis. And I don't know if they're putting the pressure or they have been publicly putting the pressure on Washington uh, in the same way, frankly, the small businesses don't necessarily always have the same kind of voice. So I think this is going to be a very important conversation tomorrow, and potentially we'll see whether it turns out to be a turning point. I mean, the three yeah, of us, I mean, Doug the, the three of us, have, round table. have fared okay. You know what I mean? I mean, we can do, we can give out yeah. all our advice on closing, opening, doing all this stuff, and we're doing fine. I haven't, you know, I've been nowhere near a food line. So I, I you know, talk about elites. I, I kind of. Um, I yep. kind of feel a mea culpa uh, for us on, on whether we're right there with I've, them because this has not affected us like it's affected the people that, uh, I mean, we need to walk in their shoes to know where we are, I think. But I wonder that's whether that's why we haven't had the, the action, you right. know? That's why we right. haven't had the action in Washington because there's not enough people who in, in Washington who are feeling it. And frankly, the people that are, I hate to say it, giving them all the money, uh, that they're not feeling it either. And, um, and maybe they're not making the phone calls that they should. So this is going to be a very, very important conversation. And thank you for listening to Squawk Pod. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings and subscribe to this podcast. Check us out anytime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 